Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Will Storr. Will is an award-winning writer, and his work has appeared in The Guardian, The Sunday Times, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. He's the author of many books, most recently The Status Game, on social position and how we use it. And that is largely the topic of today's conversation. We talk about the role that status plays in human life and culture. We discuss the taboo around caring about status, egalitarianism, the perpetual insecurity of status, how we play multiple status games simultaneously, identity, social connection, dominance, virtue, success, status urge as an evolved mechanism, gossip, status and health, the consequence of humiliation, the role of social media, status and politics, conspiracy thinking, moral panics, status and philanthropy, and other topics. Status is one of those things that once you begin thinking about it, you see it everywhere and realize that it was doing its mad work all the while without you thinking much about it. Anyway, it's a fascinating and all-too-consequential subject. And now I bring you Will Storr. I am here with Will Storr. Will, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Sam. So I loved your book. The book is The Status Game on Social Position and How We Use It. And I want us to just dive deep into that topic. But before we do, perhaps you can summarize your background as a writer, journalist, uh, however you think of yourself. What have you focused on and how do you describe your place in the world at the moment? Yeah, well, I, I was a journalist for 20 years and now I sort of focus on books really. And I, I guess most of my nonfiction focuses on, you know, looks at kind of how science can explain the human condition, really, who we are. And what other topics did you hit before status? Oh, so my first book was written in my 20s. It was about the supernatural. It was like a, you know, kind of a slightly lighthearted adventure uh, with, you know, ghost hunters and people like this. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really about, um, you know, why people believe in, you know, crazy things. You, you didn't uh, find then, any ghosts? No, <laughs> there's some odd things happened, I have to say, mm. but no, uh, you know, I didn't find any ghosts. And, and um, the next book was The Heretics, which was published in the US as The Unpersuadables. And that book looked at the question of how is it that otherwise intelligent people could end up believing crazy things? So not stupid people, but really smart people. So I did things in that book, like I, I went on this really weird holiday with the historian David Irving, who mm -hmm. is, you know, no, I don't know if you're familiar with him, I'm yeah. sure why. Yeah, but notorious. please he, summarize, yeah. Yeah, he, I mean, he, he was once highly respected historian of the Second World War. We know most of what we do about the firebombing of Dresden because of David Irving's scholarship. And then at some point in his career, he decided that Hitler was, in his words, a friend of the Jews and had nothing to do with the Holocaust. Uh -huh. And, you know, he's doggedly pursued this line, uh, this belief, and, and it has literally destroyed him. It's destroyed his reputation. It's destroyed him financially. He went to prison. He was actually in prison. He was given the opportunity. Uh, in an Austrian court to, you know, renounce his views on the Holocaust. And he, he refused and, and, and went to prison, I think in his, he might have been in his 70s. 
Um, you know, he was famously sued by an author. Mm-hmm. There, there was a film made about that court case. Uh, so, you know, this is a guy who is, you can say whatever you like about David Irving, but he's a smart guy. <laughs> he's intelligent. Uh, and yet, you know, he has come upon this insane belief that is, you know, literally to most people unbelievable. I forgot how far his denial went. Did he go so far as to say the gas chambers weren't gas chambers and examining the the ruins of the crematoria and saying that none of this is as advertised? Well, temporarily he did. He went through a temporary phase of kind of Holocaust denial um, when he read a paper. Like I think somebody somebody went to Auschwitz or somewhere and chipped some um, material off mm-hmm. the wall of a gas chamber and had it analysed yeah. for its concentration of like deadly B, gases. Yeah. That's it, right? Yeah. And and they said, you know, this um, this is a weaker level that you need to kill cockroaches. So it's impossible to think that millions of people were killed this way. But um, it didn't occur to this person actually cockroaches are much more hardy than the human beings. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, 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 but you know, to, to be fair to David Irving, he did then kind of walk back that belief. But you know, also to be fair to the truth, one of the things that I did when I was with him, I was undercover, pretending that I was also a kind of you know a revisionist, mm. right wing revisionist historian, and we went to um, a former concentration camp in Poland, and you know, he was walking past the guards tales and he was saying things like you know there's the box office and when we got into the actual gas chamber it was extremely upsetting to watch there there, there was a a school group of uh young girls i think they were from russia um is my memory and and he started and the group started barracking them about how ridiculous they were believing this stuff and he he was saying that the doors on the gas chamber were fake he said these these are just standard air raid blast doors that you know the, the the i think somebody was saying that the the locks were on the wrong side and things. So, you know, if you call him a Holocaust denier, he'll, he'll sue you. But there's certainly lots of extreme revisionism going on with him and his followers. That's mm. interesting. I wasn't expecting to talk about this, but um, I'm wondering what you think about the ethics of going undercover. What was that experience like? And I mean, it's just my generic take on this is that there are many stories that couldn't be told. Uh, or couldn't be told adequately unless some people were willing to deceive others about who they are. I mean, to go properly undercover, you know, whether from a, a law enforcement point of view or, a, you know, an espionage point of view or a journalistic one. But what was that experience like? And, and what do you personally think about the ethics of it? Uh, the ethics for me are straightforward. You know, I'm interested in the truth. I'm not interested in just dismissing these people as, oh, they're evil. That's a story. I actually want to know, you know, okay, you know, rather than calling them names, how can we explain these people believing what they do? So that, that, that's my take on the ethics. It's pretty, you know, straightforward. Do you think there was no way to embed with the heretics or the um, conspiracy theorists in a truly above board, honest way? Just saying, listen, I, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to demonize you guys. I want to understand you. I don't actually share your beliefs, but I'm really here to have an honest conversation. Sure. I mean, most of the book is, is, it was above board. I think, I think this was the only chapter I went undercover in. And that's because David Irving is, there's no way I would have got anywhere near him Mm -hmm. um, if I'd have, you know, and, 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 you know, I I didn't lie (laughs) in the email to him. I said, I'm writing a book on people who have the courage to stand up to the orthodoxy and, you know, you're, you're one of them. So yes, there was some flattery going on. But 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 uh, and and actually almost went wrong because it, on the first day of the 
sort of a seven or eight day trip, I interviewed him and and and, and was obviously too forthright in my views. And he kind of can't stop the interview. And uh, it was very difficult then to get him to agree to sit down, which he did eventually. So, so, so yeah, I did almost give the game away. Mm. I, I mean, the experience that you asked, it was, it was kind of surprising because, you know, aside from being unbelievable anti-Semites, th- these were ordinary men, you know, and they, they, they w- w- when they found out that um, David Irving wasn't cooperating with me anymore, with my project, every day after our kind of road trip, we'd, we'd sit down and have a, you know, there'd be a lecture from David and a question and answer session. And I found out towards the end that the guys had sort of conspired between them to ask lots of questions I thought would be helpful for me and my, my, my projects writing about heretics. So, so, so you know, they, they behave very kindly towards me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it, it, again, it's that, that whole thing that, that they're not monsters, that, that they are people who've made a, they've made a mistake. Yeah. So what do you, and again, I wasn't planning to hit this topic. And obviously, I haven't read that book of yours, but I'm just fascinated by why people believe crazy things and what, you know, what, especially why smart people and even well-informed people, even you know, too well-informed people in some perverse way, believe crazy things. What did you conclude about that process? I mean, how do you explain it to yourself? Obviously, this is a problem that has only grown in scope and consequence in recent years, given the way conspiracy theories are amplified on social media and given the, the reaction to the ham-fisted efforts to contain the spread of misinformation, you know, the blacklisting on uh, social media or the shadow banning or whatever else Twitter and, and Facebook currently do, that freaks everyone out when they have unorthodox information they think really must spread, whether it's about vaccines or uh, anything else, politics. Uh, so what, what's, your, what's your sense of the cognitive, emotional, social, cultural conditions that we're trying to put right here? Well, I mean, the answer that I got to in The Heretics was, was my introduction to the idea that the, the brain is a storyteller. And, you know, in, in the book, I, I describe the brain as, as a hero maker. It wants to make a, a he, us a hero in the story of our lives. And what tends to happen is that any kind of fact in inverted, that we, inverted commas that we come across that flatters that heroic mm. story, that heroic sense of who we are, we, we uncritically accept it usually. And any fact in inverted commas we come across, which challenges that heroic story of who we are we're very good at rejecting and so the brain isn't particularly interested in the truth the brain's much more interested in motivating us getting out of bed telling a heroic story about who we are and you know what what's in store for us in the future in the specific case of the holocaust deniers the people who were on the trip with david irving what was extraordinary was the number of men whose parents had served on the side of the nazis in the second world war hmm. In fact, on the final night, there was this gala showing of the film Downfall, the, the kind of hyper-realistic German film about the final days in the Hitler bunker. And one of these guys, an Australian guy, he, he didn't want to watch the film because his dad was in the bunker with Hitler hmm. and he would found it too distressing to watch the film. So, I mean, to me, that, that, that it, it felt like these were men who'd grown up with Nazi parents, and they, 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 wouldn't, they wouldn't allow themselves to believe the story that the culture tells us, that the Nazis, Nazis are synonym for evil and the Holocaust really happened. And they felt like they were on this great cognitive 
kind of mission, a lot of them, to prove that their mums and dads, probably their, you know, who they loved, weren't evil and, and all this stuff wasn't really true. So, so, so that, that, that was, you know, that, that was a, a, an insight I wasn't expecting to have when I kind of pitched up with these people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that leads us rather nicely to the topic at hand, which is status. But uh, before we go there, I was wondering, did you ever deal with the case of David Icke? I've met David Icke. Yeah, he threw me out of his house. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what what is going on there? What, who, who is David Icke for people? I think he's probably more famous across the pond than he is here. What's his story? David Icke's an extraordinary individual. So he was a, a footballer and then he was a famous BBC TV sports presenter. And then his father died and he had what I believe is a very profound nervous breakdown and an episode of psychosis. It, uh, but his kind of brain dealt with this chaos by telling a story in which he was kind of the second coming, mm-hmm. that he was basically God, Jesus. And, and, and uh, I remember seeing it, I actually saw it in, uh, in the 80s. He was on this big chat show, Wogan, which is a bit like the Letterman show. Uh, and Wogan was interviewing him about all this stuff. And the, the audience was acutely uncomfortable to watch because the audience were laughing at him openly and uh, the things he was saying. So David Icke has always been seen as this kind of absolute lunatic, you know, I mean, and, and you know, I, 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 if you read his um, memoirs, I, I'm, I'm sure he had a, uh, an episode of psychosis. But extraordinarily, he's kind of reborn now as this conspiracy theorist who manages to sell out, you know, hundreds seat, um, seat theatres. He sells Huge amounts of books, and and he, he seemed to really rise after the uh, after nine eleven. Where he, and, and he's kind of mad genius is to take all the all the individual conspiracy theories like Illuminati mm. uh, and so on, and connect them all into one grand conspiracy theory. Uh, and it involves basically high status people like the Queen and JFK being secret shape shifting lizards. He <laughs> believes the moon is a space station, a hollowed out space station. Uh, but he's got huge amounts of followers now. So he's kind of reborn as this um, kind of, it's kind of like the British Alex Jones, but yeah. much, e- even crazier than that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what, how, how I have him pegged. He's like Alex Jones, except the pedophiles are, are actually lizard people. <laughs> lizard people, shape-shifting <laughs> lizard yes. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, yeah, he, as I say, yeah, as I say, he, he threw me out of his, his house when, when he felt I was insufficiently um, well-read on his <laughs> endless, you know, multi-thousand-page books. Wow. Okay. Well, so status. What, what is status? I think people have a gut feeling for the concept, but I bet many people would be hard-pressed to give it anything like a coherent definition. How do you think about status? Well, it's simply the feeling of being valued. Uh, sometimes when you talk about status, people think, oh, he's saying that everybody wants to be rich. He's saying that everybody wants to be famous and a celebrity. And of course, wealth and fame are part of status. But, 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 but all status really is, is the feeling of being of value. So when psychologists you know, look at our kind of deep needs, our deep cravings, they find we have a craving for belongingness and connection. That's one thing. You know, we, don't, we want to be loved and we want to join groups. You know, we're tribal, obviously. But once we're in those groups, there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of urge to move up, to feel not just loved, but valued. And that's what status is. I can hear there's going to be a subliminal tug of war between my saying status and your saying status. <laughs> but I, I, I think we should both stick to our, um, 
respective countries here. I think so. So, yeah, it's and yet desire for status is taboo. It isn't taboo to say that you would want to be valued by the people in your life or by your community and that you want to have a positive you want to be seen to be making positive contributions to society, etc. But there's something tawdry or perceived to be tawdry about people's concern about status and, you know, its hallmarks. I mean, certainly when you're talking in terms of wealth and fame, you know, you, you know even virtue signaling now is, is part of this picture where, you know, any, any self-consciousness with respect to how one is being perceived by others is viewed as, um, you know, venal or in, in, in some other way something you should be able to rise above. How do, you, how do you think about the taboo aspect of seeking status? I, I think it's because we're all so chippy about our own status that, that, that we just don't like it at all if anybody was to admit that, that they were interested in it and, and we don't like it. You know, and and I think there's a taboo against, as you say, against ourselves admitting it. You know, it, it's I think it's connected to the fact that we people don't like self-aggrandizing people. They don't like people who present as if they deserve high status. When anthropologists look at pre-modern groups, hunter-gatherer groups, you know, they're often described as egalitarian. But as people like the psychology professor. Paul Bloom has pointed out they're only egalitarian because the people in those groups care so very much about status. They're constantly jostling, and there are con- there are constant checks mm. and balances. So if somebody you know go- goes in there and claims to be a great hunter and comes in all proud of their catch, then there will be a an effort by the group to pull that person down and 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 to and to, and to get them to act in humility. In the book I write about a, a pre modern group in the north of Canada who have a have a tradition of singing of, of circling a person who's too hubristic. And singing a song of derision mm-hmm. <laughs> in their faces. Yeah. So, so I, I think the taboo against kind of admitting, even to ourselves, that we're interested in status is connected to all of that stuff. Yeah, although the you know one of the the master hacks of that system is you can rise in status by not taking yourself too seriously. You only become an object, of, a successful object of derision, if you can't laugh at yourself. And there are different careers that are more amenable to this than others. But how do you view the insecurity of status? I mean, really, this is a point you make in your book at some point. Status is perpetually insecure, really, no matter Mm. who you are. I mean, you're always liable to slip on the ice and fall in front of a crowd. And it's kind of funnier the higher status you were. You know, if you're an aristocrat in a top hat, and an overcoat <laughs> and you fall on the ice that's just hilarious and so how do you view the perpetual insecurity of status and people's efforts to shore it up well yeah so so i i think that's why people get so chippy about status one of the reasons is because what is it you can't own status it's not a material object you can't you know Money is a symbol of status that you might use to measure your status, or you might not, depending on who what, what you like. But it, you know, it isn't money. Uh, you you never own your status. You can't take it to bed and lock it in a box. So it's always up for grabs. It's always in question. It, you know, Elon Musk can be reduced in status 
in conversation with somebody that he admires and respects if they treat him disparagingly. Michelle Obama, somebody as high status as her or Beyonce, equally might feel very low status if they were treated with disrespect by somebody that they that they admire. So, you know, we're constantly uh, measuring our status. In the, in the book I write about, um, neuroscientists talk about how we, how we have this thing in the brain called, they call the status detection system, mm. which is constantly measuring everything um, in, uh, as a way of gauging our status. So it measures things like the amount of eye contact we're getting with numerical precision. In one study, they looked at people being served measures of orange juice, and they found that if you serve lots of measures of orange juice to people, but one person gets slightly less orange juice than everybody else, mm. they're going to get preoccupied with it and get upset about it. And of course, we completely understand that because as human beings with, you know, who all own status detection systems, we know full well that what you're upset about isn't the fact that you've got half a mouthful less of orange juice than the next person. It's that your, your status detection system has read that as an insult, as, a, as, as, okay, so I'm not as valuable as all these other people because you're giving me less juice. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's connected to, and maybe it's really of a piece with a broader principle here, which is that people's sense of their own well-being is so often anchored to comparison with a lot of others, right? And, and so it's not based on some absolute measure of, of well-being. And that's why, you know, all boats rising with the same tide doesn't really solve most people's problems because even if things get better and better for them, they, th they see things getting better and better for their neighbor who already had much more than them. And actually, this is a point explicitly made in your book by Karl Marx, if I recall, which I, I never, yes. I wasn't aware that Marx hit on this. And, you know, he was, he was not a dummy uh, for all the, the chaos born of his economic mm. theories. And uh, yeah, he said, you know, basically, uh, if you have a tiny little house, that's going to be fine as long as everyone else has a tiny little house. But if there's a palace next door, your tiny little house is now going to be perceived as a, a hut or a hovel, and uh, mm. you'll be unhappy. Well, I, we'll get to any ways in which you draw lessons from this uh, later on. But um, one point you just made, which um, at least implicitly, was that we, we only tend to care about others' view of us and therefore mark our status this way insofar as we respect the other people, which is to say, based on how we perceive their status. I mean, the status they hold for us is the cash value of their opinion of us and is the thing that can raise or lower our status, or at least to some degree. And yeah. I, yeah, I just had a recent experience of this. I, you know, perhaps you noticed it online. I had a what purported to be a, a real conflagration and uh, witch burning uh, you know, on, on Twitter where I, where I was the witch. But it took place in exclusively right-wing circles Explicitly, you know, it was in, happening in Trumpistan, under, you know, among Trump's most avid defenders. And um, what was interesting, you know, psychologically, in my experience, is how little I cared about the, you know, the human sacrifice, uh, you know, that, that I had become because of how I view the people who were, you know, dancing on my grave. Because in my world, Anyone who is defending Trump to that degree at this point really has low status. Yeah. Like I basically, I know I don't agree with almost anything that is uh, underwriting their opinion of me there. And so it really, it, it really didn't matter. 
except I saw one writer whose work I admire. Sort of, I mean, he didn't, he wasn't all in on my uh, auto de fe, but he was, he'd caught some of the, the, the pleasures of, of being had at my expense. And like that one person, you know, that stung because I actually like that person, right? And, can, and admire his writing. So it was, it was interesting just to see that bifurcation in my mind. And it was, um, yeah, anyway, that's, uh, perhaps you have some, yeah. something to say about that. No, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. So, so, so what, what, what they find is that we're not playing a status game with everybody in the world. We, we play multiple status games. You know, we have these, you know, we, 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 we're kind of tribal in, in, in the sense that we're members of lots of tribes all at once. And we care about what the, our kind of co-players in these tribes think of us. But people outside our tribes, I mean, sure, if anybody insults you, you're going to feel something probably. But as you say, if, if you have contempt for these people, if we actually actively consider them low status, it's, no way, it's not going to sting anywhere near as much as somebody in your game with you who, you, you know, A mm. and, and B, especially if they're in your game with you and, they're, and you perceive them as to be above you in that status game, then those are the ones that really burn. Yeah, and it really, it's impressively multidimensional. And, and it's, it shifts because you can be, it can be for the purpose of any specific encounter or conversation, who has high status and who doesn't. So you can be an academic, you know, who, you know, almost by definition, doesn't have a lot of money or doesn't have a lot of fame. But in a certain dinner party conversation, that person can be very high status when they're, you know, they're opining on their topic. And, you know, the billionaire at the table will feel lower status intellectually when dealing on that topic. But then things flip when you're talking about money or fame, and it goes round and round, depending on what the, the matter at hand actually is. Yeah, and it's how you're measuring status. You know, we, 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 we're so amazing at playing these status games. We can use anything as, uh, to, to measure status. It's certainly not all about money. You know, my wife and I have been to, you know, places like Saint-Tropez in France, places where we could, you know, we, we're surrounded, we, we're in the bottom 1% of wealthy people mm. in Saint-Tropez. But even we, you know, we managed to look down our noses at a lot of them because, oh, they're such, oh, they're so, oh, they're so gauche, you know, this, oh, look at that. You know, like, like it's, it's not about money. So it's, you know, we, we've got our own ways of measuring status. They've got their own ways of measuring status. No, they, they, they were looking us <laughs> and, mm. and, and seeing these, you know, scruffy Herberts who, with, with, with bad shoes who shouldn't be there. And, and we were looking at them as these ridiculously over the top, you know, orange skinned idiots. So, so, so yeah, it, 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 it all depends on how you're measuring status, how you're, how you're assessing status. Every game has its different, almost like tokens, you know, like, like on the Monopoly board, you've got plastic houses and hotels. Every game's got its different way of, a different thing of standing for status. And all of this connects to the concept of identity. How do you think about identity in light of the sort of never-ending possibility of finding new status games and having one supersede the next? Just how do you think of personhood, I mean, perhaps a healthy sense of personhood in light of that landscape? 
Well, I mean, it's huge. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, to, to a great extent, we, we become the games that we play. You know, when I say I'm a writer, that I'm not talking about what I do for a job. That's a, a massive part of my identity because that's 95% of the, <laughs> the source of the status in my life, which is an un- unhealthy, you know, um, amount, really. So, you know, we, we join groups. The groups have rules of behavior. Um, we, we follow the rules. And the better we follow the rules, the higher we climb in status. You know, we begin to dress like those kinds of people, talk like those kinds of people, read the kind of books and in, consume art in the way that those kinds of people read books and consume art. Hmm. You, you know, p- identity is fluid and multiple. We can be one, one person when we're engaged in one status pursuit, maybe at work, and then at the weekend when we're with our, you know, cycling friends we can be another kind of version of us playing another status game so uh, you can't separate the status game from identity you know as a, uh, you know i really do believe that, that to, to to a great extent, as i say we, we we become those games that we play you know we, we, we become conformist in that group context uh, and, and in terms of you know how should we pursue these games uh, and this is where i become a bit hypocritical because i'm not very good at doing this myself but but the research is that, that that we're kind of happier and more stable emotionally the more groups we belong to. So I think the mm. more status games we play, the more sources of status that we have, the more we hedge, the better place we are. You know, I'm in a vulnerable position because my life is devoted to my writing, and if and if that was to go wrong, I mean, it, you know, my my career will peak and decline like anybody's does. It's going to be more than just a disappointment for my career. It's going to be. Uh, an assault on my identity and an assault on my sense of who I am. Yes, it's also interesting how some of the the markers of status can flip. So I was thinking as you were speaking about um, what's happened just with dress as a a social signal. In certain contexts, dressing in fancy, expensive clothing is a marker of high status, but in other contexts, it's actually a marker of low status or, or certainly lower status when compared to the billionaire who just shows up in a hoodie because he can, you know, like there's no reason if you're Mark Zuckerberg, you know, I guess if you're, you're dragged before Congress, you put on a, on a suit, but, a suit. <laughs> but, but when you're in every other situation, the fact that you just roll in in a hoodie is a sign that, well, you don't have to play the game of wearing nice clothes, right? I mean, like, you know, I don't think this is necessarily conscious on his part or anyone else's part. And I now, as I complete this sentence, I'm forced to reflect on the fact that I've been wearing hoodies with disconcerting <laughs> regularity. But um, there is something about just being, when you're of sufficient status in a certain context, you don't have to try, you know, you don't have to put yeah. on airs. You don't, there's no pretense that you need to have because you're the genuine article. Well, uh, except I'd say there is a, there there are airs and there is there is pretense. It's just that I think dress is an it, it, well all, all of the kind of status cues that we adorn ourselves with is always an arms race. You know, we're we're always looking at what other people are doing and wanting to one better. And I think I, I think when you get to the to the very top, that's that's the way that you can do it. I mean, my my wife um, and up until recently was the editor of Elle magazine, the the, the fashion magazine mm-hmm. in the UK, and she would always tell me that. Um, the people in the fashion industry don't wear all that very expensive stuff. They 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 tend to dress in black and have their hair pulled back, uh, and that always made me think of, 
weirdly of Hitler because because <laughs> Hitler was the same, wasn't he? He just wore he didn't wear all his military stuff. He just wore you know with medals and all that stuff like um, Hermann Göring did. He just wore a plain uniform because the, because because you know what do you do when all the people at the when you're above the people at the, you know, at the very top of the status game who are all adorned in their finery, we just go the other way. You signal that I don't need, you know, the pose is, I don't even need that. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's still a pose. You're, you're still marking yourself out as separate from the other high, you know, elite people around you. So, but the, in your book, you, you describe some other principles here which can balance this out. I mean, like, for instance, connection. What's the relationship between social connection and status? Well, I, I mean, it's linked when you when you think of the concept of the status game. You know, when, when I talk about status games, it's just a proxy for tribe. You know, we're, we're a tribal animal, uh, and that's why we crave connection and status. We, we time and time and time again collect into groups. Those groups have rules, and then you know, the better we play by those rules, and the, you know, the, the the better we play in the context of of that group, the higher we rise in status, and the better. The conditions of our life get within that group. So, you know, connection is is an indivisible part of the status game. But, but as I say in the book, it's it's not enough. We like to think of, about connection a lot because it's it it feels like it's something nice about humans that that we're, we love belongingness and we love being loved and and that's true. But once we've connected into any group, we're we're rarely content to be to kind of flop about on the bottom rungs, considered likable but useless. You know, mm. we, we want to feel like, okay, they like me, but do they value me? You know, do they, do they, do that, uh, do I impress them? Is there, are there things that they look at? They think, well, well, he or she is good at that. So, 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 you know, and when you, when you think about that, you know, the concept of the status game of, of, of the groups and, and, and the contest for status, that, that is all of human social life outside the family. That's religions, that's corporations, that's cults, that's, you know, football teams, you name it, that's what we're doing. We're gathering into groups, playing by rules and rising and falling in status, depending on how well, you know, we serve those rules. That, you know, that, you know, connection and status is kind of what we do as human beings. For you now, as you've thought about this, at this sort of depth, what I'm hearing is that there's really, you're not envisioning an alternative to caring about status. I mean, is it, there's obviously the the embarrassing and petty and tawdry end of this, but there's also the idealistic, ennobling, you know, virtuous end as well. Am I hearing you correctly? That it's not a matter of getting out of the status game. It's in finding a healthy, life-affirming, connection-inducing, creative version of it. Well, it's about playing the right game. So, you know, I, I think there are there are basically three different genres of status game that, that that humans generally play. There are three kinds of status game. The first kind of status game is the dominance game, and we've been playing dominance games for millions of years since before we were human. You know, dominance is aggression or the threat of it. So, when hens peck each other to establish a pecking order, that's a dominance game. We still do that, you know. We, obviously, we still do that. It's not, and it's not just physical violence; it's also any kind of coercion, bullying, ostracization, any kind of threat. Anytime somebody is forcing you to attend to them in kind of humility, uh, mm. as if they're a high-status person, that's dominance. So that's dominance. There's also the virtue game. You know, when we became human and became tribal, you know, one of the ways we could earn status is by being virtuous. And so, virtue is all about 
knowing the rules, following the rules, enforcing the rules. And it's also about belief, you know, how well and how sincerely do you believe the stories and myths and legends and laws of the tribe? Um, so that's, that, that's the virtue game. And you can, you can see people like the Pope, the Dalai Lama, Michelle Obama. These are kind of superstars, global superstars of the virtue game. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they're famous for being good. You know, the, over here in the UK, the royal family is a kind of virtue game. Uh, it's all about deference and respect and believing in all your heart that the queen <laughs> and a fucked up family are really mm. special and important. And, you know, uh, so that's a virtue game. But there's also the success game. You know, the other way that you could earn status and be a, seen as a valuable person in the tribal context is by being good at stuff, being a good storyteller, a good tuba finder, a good warrior, um, a good sorcerer, and so on. And, you know, that's modernity, that's civilization. Even, as I say in the book, even you know, Adam Smith, the father of capitalism, recognized that it wasn't pursuit of money that you know, made the world go round and that, and that made progress happen. And it was the pursuit of what he called esteem. It, it's that people want to feel Im like important in the eyes of their peers. So you don't want to get rid of the status game. You know, I, I, I really believe that we are, make a fundamental mistake when we condescend to the status urge. Like it's certainly the very worst of human nature. And in the book, you know, I write about status and its connection to everything from serial killers to genocide to kind of incel misogynist culture and spree killers. Yeah. But it's also the best of human nature. You don't get modernity without the status game. You don't get progress. You don't get science. You don't get technology. You don't get vaccines and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. And it just seems like having a social process that reinforces value right? The value people create for others, the value people get in being recognized for creating value for others. And there's just a positive feedback loop there. I mean, that is the healthy form of esteem is the social mechanism that inspires people to do more and more that other people value, right? I mean, apart from just yeah. month being paid for it, obviously, is the material version of that. But contributing to society and having society tell you they want more of that and to feel better as a result, that is a, a virtuous piece of machinery that I think we would, yeah, I mean, may, perhaps there's, there's a way of psychologically uncoupling even from that and being happier still. I mean, that's there is certainly the notion of self-transcendence within, mm. you know, an explicitly contemplative context would argue for that. And I, I mean, perhaps we could have a sidebar conversation on that topic. But, you know, short of that, what it means to be a good person in a healthy society entails actually adding to the well-being of others in addition to, I mean, or finding a mode of fulfilling one's own desires that is actually positive sum with respect to the desires of uh, and well-being of others. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's incredible and fantastic that our species has, has evolved this instinct to reward ourselves and other people when they prove that they are, they are of value. You know, when we, you know, we even do it to ourselves. Uh, you know, you sometimes the, um, so, you know, researchers write about what they call the imaginary audience that we have in our heads. We've evolved this kind of, you know, tribe that we carry in our heads that judges us, and we feel, you know, we sometimes think of it as, the, you know, as conscience, as uh, you know, we feel prideful and shameful when. You know, when when things happen in front of the imaginary audience in our heads, uh, and uh, you know, when we do good things, even privately, we feel good. You know, we we feel we, we you get a little jolt of oh, 
I feel really good about myself. I feel higher status because I've done this generous thing. And when, when other people find out about the, the nice selfless thing we did, they automatically usually go, wow, that's really nice. You know, they, they, they award us with that status. And it's the same with the success game, with competence. You know, when I was, the book was being published um, in the UK last year, it was all through the COVID thing. And the, the um, inventors of the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, over here were, were, were made kind of celebrities of and put on the front of, you know, the Times magazine and so on. And it struck me that it's brilliant that we did this. You know, I'm not arguing that the inventors of the COVID vaccine were motivated by a desire for fame at all, but I am sure that they were motivated by a desire to impress their peers and to be thought of as excellent scientists by their peers. But, but I think it's marvellous that, that we as a species automatically want to put them on our magazines and celebrate them and applaud them. You know, mm. that, that, that is, to me, is the best of human nature. That, that, that's at us at our best. And, and it's interesting when you think about the, you know, that thought experiment about, okay, so, uh, you know, as well as being responsible for a lot of our proudest moments, maybe, you know, all of our proudest moments, perhaps, the status instinct is uh, also responsible for a lot of our most miserable, awful, humiliating, humbling, distressing moments. So it's not surprising then that people would want to, you know, practice meditation, say, to kind of rid themselves completely of the kind of status urge. Mm. And, and I feel that, that, that actually sort of lessening that status urge is, is probably kind of possible. I, I, I don't believe it's possible to completely get rid of it. It's been part of our evolution for millions of years. But it's an interesting thought experiment to think, okay, so, so what if that dream came true? And what, what if it was possible to meditate your way completely out of the status game? And what if everybody in the world did that? Well, then progress would stop. Civilization would end. It, it, would, it, it would be an absolute disaster for our species. So it's an interesting area that, uh, and it just occurred to me the other day thinking about that kind of thought experiment. Yeah, I think there, in my experience, it, it's certainly possible to transcend for periods of time. It's, it is deeply connected to the feeling of self, right? If you, if you can have the experience of being conscious, shorn of a feeling of self, which you can certainly have, then one would ask, where can one's status concerns or even perception of status land? And you know, there are various spiritual exercises that people have traditionally engaged to do this. I mean, you can, in you know, traditional cultures in India, people will just give up everything. They become sadhus and they, mm -hmm. they wander like they're basically homeless people, but they, they're spiritual homeless people. But of course, what can sneak in there for virtually everyone is a new gold standard of status, which is now the spiritual identity of being a you know someone who's above the world. Yeah. And so now you're this barefoot beggar who thinks he's superior to everyone in sight. I think it's it's interesting to consider what would remain of you know what's the positive residue of status if you had the fully non-neurotic, uh, self-transcending point of view here. And I mean, because it was, I mean, the, the heuristic, of, like within Buddhism, the heuristic is you, you're, you want to achieve a state of consciousness where fame and shame and loss and gain and praise and blame and even pleasure and pain are equalized, right? I mean, the promise is that mm. that's possible. The consciousness that's aware of praise is the same that's aware of blame. 
and there's a point of view from which your your well-being is undiminished you know it isn't aggrandized in in the in the one case and and diminished in the other and you can certainly experience that but then the question is on the basis of that experience what kind of life are you motivated to live and mm. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you that if everyone just unplugged all at once and saw no upside in doing anything special, well, then, yeah, everything stops, and we're we're all just homeless people you know, who who have lost happy the, homeless mo- people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we could be you know bl- blissful homeless people, but we've yeah. lost the motivation to even repair our machines as they break down, and you yeah. know, so we don't want that in the end. But it is interesting to consider what would be if you could just grab a hold of all the cognitive and emotional and and social and cultural dials here mm. and tune them to the the optimal positions who would you want to be right if like like what yeah. if we could if we could really understand ourselves and change ourselves you know who who do we want to be here and i mean even take something like gossip which is traditionally i mean certainly in in a spiritual contemplative context Gossip is generally thought of as a bad practice, right? This is not bringing out the best in you or anyone else, and it's worth avoiding. And yet, there's certainly an evolutionary story to tell about the role of gossip as and the importance of reputation management and just concern about reputation is a kind of guardrail for people's misbehavior. You know, in a condition of total shamelessness, where you really don't care what is being said about you by anyone, is sort of a recipe for going berserk. Maybe, maybe let's just let's focus on gossip and mm-hmm. social shaming and, and reputation management. How do you how do you think about those? Well, gossip, a bit like status, you know, has a bad reputation, but it's essential to to human civilization. I mean, one of the you probably know one of the dominant theories at the moment is that language evolved in the first place to spot gossip you know it's universal we all do it gossip is how we learn to live in the world you know from uh, as soon as children can speak that they're kind of swapping kind of proto gossipy stories telling tales on their brothers and sisters you know morally inflected tales Mm -hmm. um it's it's how we learn to live it's how we learn to behave It, it, it it moderates our behavior you know you can see religion as a basically a a form of gossip network that evolved to manage super large societies where god was this you know disembodied supernatural being that, that could see everybody's private business uh, and knew everybody's gossip and, and would judge mm. you accordingly you can see the modern media as a, as a huge gossip network social media is is a form of gossip network so it's so again it's this fundamental part of human existence gossip that that is in you know uh, I, I always want to, I, I always feel reluctant to class something good or bad because it's kind of, that, that's storytelling. I mean, gossip is neither good or bad. Gossip is, like all these complex subjects, is a trade-off. It has good effects and it has bad effects. And mm-hmm. we're all very familiar with its, with its bad effects. But when a corrupt politician is being, you know, gossiped about in, an, in the newspaper and ends up getting his or her comeuppance, then, then, then we applaud, you know, the batter of gossip. So, you know, we need gossip to function in a, in a successful society, just like we need the status surge to function in a successful society. And I just think it's, you know, classing status or gossip as good or bad is, to me, that just feels like storytelling. It's, it's, it's not 
it's not a good lens through which to look at these subjects. Mm. What do we know about status and health? So there was this amazing um, set of studies called the Whitehall studies that a guy called Dr. Michael Marmot did over here in the UK, where, where Whitehall is basically the bureaucracy of government. So it's a huge network of organizations, immensely hierarchical. And so he, he found this remarkable fact that basically the, the, the lower you went down the hierarchy of Whitehall, the worse people's health outcomes became and the greater their kind of mortality risk became. So, so, so the immediate thought is, oh, well, that's because rich people are so privileged and they've got personal trainers and macrobiotic diets and all this stuff. But it, but it wasn't that because even one step down from the very top, somebody still extremely wealthy, extremely privileged would have slightly worse health outcomes than the person on top mm. of them. So he calls this the, the status syndrome. Um, it's been found in men and women. It's been found in, in countries that aren't the UK. It's even been found in monkeys in, in, in mm. laboratories. They, they got these monkeys and they fed them really bad diets, like lots of junk food, delicious diets, um, until they got very bad atherosclerotic plaque. Um, and, they, and they found, again, that the, the, the monkey, at the, even though it had identical diets, the monkey at the top of the hierarchy would be less likely to fall ill as a result of their bad diet than the, one, the monkey one below them. And then importantly, they conspired to change the hierarchy of the troop and the health outcomes changed in lockstep. So this is one of the remarkable things to me and one of the things that made me really sort of believe, yeah, okay, the, you know, status is a really big deal. Was mm. that it isn't just our psychological health. That, that, that our sense of status is dependent on, but it also affects our physical health. Yeah, there's a, there's a story about cortisol here where you, based on the work of Robert Sapolsky he, in Baboons, he discovered that you know, as, you, as the changing fates of baboons evolved with respect to status, the alpha male and, and all the rest, the levels of cortisol circulating in them uh, changed drastically. and High cortisol is bad for everything, mm. atherosclerosis as well. And, and also, you, you talk in your book, I mean, you, you did this in, in the chapter on, certainly on incels, I forget where else, but the, the psychological consequences of humiliation. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, when I was, again, when I was thinking about, is this a book and is, it, is, this, is it really true that status is so important? The kind of test that I gave myself was, okay, so if you're going to argue it's really important, what happens when it's taken away? It must be, must be pretty bad. And I found this extraordinary paper called Humiliation and Its Consequences. And, and, and the psychologist who wrote that paper defined humiliation as not merely the loss of status, but the loss of status that's so severe you're essentially forbidden or disallowed from claiming status from that group at any point in the future. You've got to leave. I mean, they're, they're basically describing cancel culture before cancel mm -hmm. culture happened. You know, that's yeah. humiliation. You know, you're, 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 you're banished from, from, from the, your group of peers. And they found, just an enormous category of terrible human behavior that humiliation, humiliation is deeply implicated in. And I kind of describe that and I also expand it in the chapter. I mean, I talk about um, you know, everything from serial murder to honor killings to terrorism to um, uh, spying and, and even up to genocide. Humiliation is deeply implicated in, in all of these uh, phenomena. The, the story I went most deeply in on is Elliot Roger, the kind of incel misogynist spree killer. Yeah, and you know, in the I, I kind of described this kind of perfect storm of of destruction, which is which is a, somebody that is male, grandiose and humiliated. 
often becomes an extremely dangerous person. Male, because males often are much more likely to play status games with violence, dominance games with violence. And it's not just about, you know, we all feel humiliated at times, but very few of us go on to commit terrible acts. But it seems to be the people who are grandiose to start off with and, and narcissistic to start off with, though, when those people are repeatedly humiliated and they often become extremely dangerous. Hmm. Yeah, so, some just become president of the United States. <laughs> yeah. There is that great, I don't know if you are aware, I mean, it must be, you probably are aware of it, but the moment at the, the White House correspondence dinner where Obama humiliated Trump, that's you know, often credited as, as the moment where his, his campaign for the presidency started. Did, did you ever see the footage of that event? No, I didn't see that. Oh, there's a, I forget where this is presented. I think it's in, it's in some documentary on Trump. So it's the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and Obama is president, and he makes Trump the object of oh my uh, you know, fairly uh, lacerating comedic ridicule. And, you, you, you know, there's like a camera angle on Trump. I mean, you see Trump not being able to laugh at his own expense at all. Wow. And it's, you know, it, it is just absolutely Shakespearean that he was able to move from that point to becoming president and, you know, showing the Obamas the door quite literally after he was inaugurated. Incredible. It, I wish yeah, I'd known about that. It's, incre I mean, it's incredible footage. Yeah. One of the things that always struck me about Trump that I thought was, it always made me think he's not going to be that dangerous because Trump plays a success game. All he cares mm. about, and it's kind of a small success game, all he cares about is, you know, how much money he has, if he's going to be at the top of this rich list or that rich list, if he's going to win this election or lose this election. Mm -hmm. Whereas leaders like George W. Bush and, you know, Tony Blair, they, they were playing virtue games and it's the world leaders who play virtue games and decide that they want to redraw the world in ways that they see as a kind of superior. Those, mm -hmm. those are the ones that cause millions of deaths, you know, not the Trumps of this world. Who all, he, he plays these silly, you know, <laughs> kind of small-minded success games. So, so, so it, you know, I always felt that he was going to be less dangerous than the, mm -hmm. the, than the leaders, some of the leaders that went before him because he just doesn't really care about virtue or changing the world in his image like you know well forget bush and blair you know um lenin and hitler have done yeah. for him yeah I, mean, I think there's something confusing about calling it a virtue game in that context but i actually i agree with you with respect to the the smallness of of trump's yardstick and and that does contain the the likely damage that he's uh he's capable of and I and I said as much in a recent podcast, responding to all of the backlash to the to the previous comments. So, so you brought up uh, cancel culture, which does open the door to more on this topic, and just really the the signs of our times now with you know conspiracy theories and social activism. But you you have an analysis of of how they are energized by status concerns. Uh, so we should talk about that. But then I. I just want to talk about the way in which this plays out in the culture wars and, you know, on all fronts, but explicitly politically with what you call the, the new right and the new left. Mm. So maybe let's, let's talk about the way in which uh, conspiracy thinking and social activism interact here, and then, then we can talk about the politics of it all and uh, yeah. the, the new phenomenon of, of what we call cancel culture. 
Yeah. Okay. So I, I guess just sort of beginning with social media. I mean, in the in the book, I, I call social media a, a slot machine for status. I think it's quite well known by people who have a kind of backstage uh, interest in social media that the kind of theory, the, the, the psychological theory that it, social media works off, which is that um, its rewards are inconsistent, just like a fruit machine. So you never know quite what you're going to get when you post to social media. Sometimes you get lots of likes. Sometimes you get none. Sometimes you get, you know, stuff thrown at you. So, 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 you know, it's the inconsistent rewards that keeps us going back again and again and again and again to it. But what I felt was missing from that theory was, okay, so it's a slot machine, but, but what are you gambling with? And, you know, I feel like the, the answer for me clearly is status. You know, when we talk about those dominance games, virtue games and success games, that's social media. That's what you see on social media. It's people pushing each other around, playing dominance games, people playing virtue games. And, you know, I think the important thing to understand about virtue games is that you, 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 you indicated it's a bit confusing to think about virtue in the sense of Hitler and communism, but virtue is always yeah. local to the group. You know, every group has its own idea of what's virtuous. To Hitler, eradicating the Jews was virtuous. To um, Lenin, eradicating the bourgeoisie was virtuous. So, you know, we all, and, and that's why virtue can be so unbelievably dangerous. And actually, virtue can be a terrible, hellish thing because each group has its own different idea about, you know, about what is virtuous. And so you see these mm. virtue games being played out o- online. And of course, you see success games, people showing off about their holiday and their lovely breakfast and their flat stomach. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, that, that's how I believe that, you know, because social media is is become enormously impactful and successful and it's global it's you know humans all around the world love social media because in my view humans all over the world love status and and so social media is a new way that we can play um status games so you, you know that so human life unfolds online these days and and that includes conspiracy theories that includes you know what I call these virtue dominance games, uh, which the cancel culture mobs play, you know, so, 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 so there's this blend of virtue and dominance, it's, which is kind of, uh, I will force you to respect and adhere to my own group's rules of what is virtuous and what isn't. You know, I will force you to attend to my group in status. You know, that, that, that's what's happening with, you know, with those groups. I also write a bit about, um, you know, conspiracy theories and in the book, I write particularly about anti-vaccination conspiracy theories. Mm. And I interviewed this um, amazing woman from Pennsylvania called Miranda Dinder, who told me how she got sucked into that whole anti-vaccination world. She um, was 18 and pregnant. All her friends were at college, so she had you know, no one to talk to. She was, felt isolated. She saw a documentary about home births, and she wanted to find a midwife who it would give her a home birth so she found one and she came on and she was perfectly normal and nice and um and she was a mum of several children and you know miranda said you know i've brought i've been brought up in a family of powerful strong women loads of sisters and i love strong women i'm impressed by strong women it's that's my thing and she was this you know amazing strong woman and so she was very impressed by her and at the end she said have you considered not getting your baby vaccinated and she said well that's weird why would you say that well of course i'm going to get the baby vaccinated and the midwife said to her, well, just go and look online, just Google it. You know, there's some information that you might find on there. So, of course, she goes down this Google rabbit hole. Um, she finds a Facebook group called Great Moms Questioning Vaccines. And she joins and announces herself as unsure now about vaccines. And the group, you know, glom onto her immediately. 
Mm. And again, she describes this experience of being surrounded by these powerful, opinionated, impressive women and just wanting to impress them. And, you know, very quickly wanting to join that group and, you know, rising up. In, and she said to rise up in status in that group is a matter of really passionately believing the things they believe about how vaccination is this big conspiracy. And not only that, but then going out into the world and kind of enacting that belief. So she would go out and argue with her cousins and then come back home and straight on Facebook and type up the arguments and people would cheer her and clap her and she would rise in status in the group. You know, when she, her baby was born, she didn't get her vaccinated. Of course, that's an, and she had a, you know, she, she had a stern words with her doctor and that also enabled her to kind of rise in status with the group. So, you know, I think that's how a lot of this, the, the, these um, phenomena are working. They are, they, they are status games and, and people like Miranda are, you know, getting sucked into these worlds because it's making them feel important. You know, she magics from being, you know, a young mum, a young going to be mum in Pennsylvania to being somebody that sincerely believed that she was on this mission to save the world from these evil actors who were trying to get everybody vaccinated so she so, so her kind of identity her sense of self is now heroic and fantastic and changing the mm. world and so and, and i think that's how a lot of these you know these phenomena manifest i write also in, in detail about the satanic panic and describe you know mm. that kind of you know we, we think of those phenomena as moral panics but to me they're status gold rush movements you know everybody involved in in the satanic panic was earning enormous amounts of status from from their involvement not only in things like money and fame and being on oprah and gerardo rivero and all that stuff but also again like miranda they, they'd gone from being ordinary therapists you know family therapists and counselors and local police officers to people that literally believed that they were out there in the world pursuing an evil conspiracy of child abusing satanists who were disguised as you know, lawyers and doctors and architects and the respectable people. So, yeah, I, I think when you see this stuff through the lens of status, a lot of it begins to make a lot more sense. Yeah, it does. It does because it's it's a way of usurping the current status hierarchy. I mean, li literally the the status quo of status by pretending to have secret knowledge. Right. I mean, so it's like, like the contrarian view. If you're always going to take the contrarian view, you're undermining what is thought to be the, the high status opinion by just making an, an end run around it, saying that none of the usual sources of credible information can be trusted. I have unique insight into how they've all failed. And I'm essentially a you know, fighting dragons much yeah. larger than I am. So I'm given, I'm given immense energy in this quest, right? And, it's, and it is intrinsically virtuous because you're coming to the rescue of all the people who don't even know or are so duped, they don't even know they need to be rescued. It becomes a, there's a kind of grandiosity to it. But what, what's amazing about it is that it is so quickly achieved, right? I mean, it's not mm -hmm. like you don't even need to succeed at anything in order to get this this thing off the ground, right? You, you just have to have a, a sufficiently large community, and it can be a very small mm. community reinforcing this view of the world. Absolutely. And, and, and the thing I'd, I'd like to emphasize is that, and this is something I've been writing about through my whole career, is that I, I think it's common for people to look at people like Miranda Dinder or David Irving or the Satanic Panic people and think, oh, well, they're 
pretending to believe these things for cynical reasons. And I think that underestimates the brain's capacity to believe what it has to believe in order to earn connection and status. You know, I've been hanging out with people who have crazy beliefs for most of my career. And I can tell you that nine, nine times out of 10, at least, they sincerely believe those things to be true. David Irving, mm. since he's not doing it for attention, he had attention already. He had status. He's got less status now than he had before. But, but, he, but, but he sincerely believes what he believes about Hitler being a friend of the Jews, such that he went to prison uh, for his beliefs. Miranda Dinder, when she went through her period of vaccine denial, sincerely believed that it was a conspiracy against people. I, I, you know, and, and, and it can be baffling. I mean, the satanic panic, I mean, the, the, the stories that were going about, you know, children being sexually abused by nuns, thrown by, from boats into schools of sharks, flushed down toilets mm. into underground abuse chambers, killed by baby tigers. You know, it's like, yeah. you can tell <laughs> it's kids making stuff up. It's obvious. But, but people went, dozens of people went to prison. You know, law, law yeah. enforcement officers believe this stuff. Judges believe this stuff. Journalists believe this stuff. It's really extraordinary, the brain's capacity to believe what it has to believe if it feels our status is at stake or if, or if there's status on offer. So now how do you map this onto the current political landscape of what you call the new right and the new left? Well, um, so yeah, the, so there's a chapter in the book that looks at this. It, it kind of builds on a previous book of mine called Selfie, which, which looked at the kind of the roots of Western individualism and the effect of the technology age and um, the neoliberal economy on, you know, our sense of who we are. And so, you know, this, this, is, this, is, this is speculative, I have to say. It's just my theory. Like, if you look at the culture wars through the lens of the status game, this is, this is what, where you get. And I, and I think, you know, I think there's something to be said for it. So, you know, the obvious stuff is the, what I call the new right. The Trump supporter, the Brexit voter, you know, the, the, the white working class, blue collar uh, individual who, since the 1960s, both in the UK and the, in the US, you know, the left's kind of cone of concern has shifted from poor people, from poverty to issues of race and gender. You know, so George Orwell, I'm a left wing person, and George Orwell was once, and, and, and his fellow leftists were once obsessed with, with poverty, with poor people. And the left really aren't that obsessed with poverty anymore. It's, it's much more about race and gender. So, of course, the poor people, the working class people, the blue collar workers, they feel this and they feel that their status has declined in the world. Mm. They, they feel that, they, 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 you know, they, they feel insulted and abused and disregarded. Certainly in the UK, the Brexit vote, I think, was very much about anger at immigration. And, you know... Well, one thing to add here is that it's not just that poor people are being disregarded. The people who have this, this new fixation on race and gender are disproportionately well-off and well-educated. Right? Exactly. So it's kind of an elitist class thing sneaking into the picture. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 so the new right, um, you know, the Trump voter, the Brexit voter, sees the world as, sees the status game as unfairly dominated by educated people, by highly educated mm -hmm. people. Whereas the new left, who are, who are the highly educated people, see the world as unfairly dominated by straight white men, you know, lot, uh, even working class and, and poor straight white men. So they, they, they both have this story they tell of the status game being corrupt with kind of each other being responsible for its corruption. 
the the, the new left story is um you know probably less well known so if you look at um there was a a huge social study in the uk and the us a few years ago the called the more in common report which which you might be familiar with which looked at kind of the various kind of demographic groups in the uk and the us so over here in the uk uh, it defined progressive activists people who are kind of highly motivated by the pursuit, the pursuit of social justice as being that they found that these people were the most highly educated of seven demographic groups they found, and also the, the wealthiest of all the demographic groups. They, they, they were mm. more families earning £50,000 and above than any other group. So they're the most wealthy, they're the most uh, highly educated. They also make more contributions to social media than all of the rest of the country combined which is quite extraordinary <laughs> so when I, you go on twitter I can well believe that yes yeah. when you go on twitter it feels like it's the whole world but it's not in the uk i always get these figures mixed up in the i think it's in the, in the uk it's 13 percent of progressive activists in the us it's eight percent but it might be the other way around it's but but mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a sliver but as i say they make more contributions to social media than, than any other than all of the rest of the groups combined they're also the, the wealthiest and most highly educated groups now if you look at what's been going on with that sliver of the population um, since the global financial crisis, you know, the, the story of millennials and Gen Zs is of the status game failing, you know, beginning with the global financial crisis, which kind of seemed to reveal the kind of capitalist system as being absolutely corrupt and kind of, you know, used against them. Uh, but also, you know, in very, very real terms, you know, famously, the millennials were the first generation to be earning less total income than their parents' generation. They're saddled with huge amounts of student debt. They are finding it harder than ever to get onto the property ladder. They, they, they are suffering from higher than ever, ever levels of underemployment. So, you know, uh, th th there are so many highly educated. The university systems in the UK and the US are throwing out so many elite mm. players. There aren't enough elite positions to fill them. And so, one known predictor of societal disturbance is what they call elite overproduction. When there are too yeah. many elites for the system to feed, and I think we are seeing a period of elite overproduction. So, so I think that this group, you know, in spite of their wealth, you know, in spite of their, um, and, or because of their, you know, education, are also feeling a decline in status. I think for us in Gen X um, and for the Boomers, we were very good at playing success games. You know, the the story of the eighties and nineties and the early two thousands were success games. You know, people becoming rich and successful. And I, and I think for Gen Z and millennials, I think there's less success-based status on offer. So what you see is this move into mm. virtue games, this move into, okay, so if I can't get, get success-based status, I'm, I need my status. So it becomes virtue-based status. And I think that's what's driving a lot of this very moralistic uh, status play that we see online and out there in the real world now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it does explain a lot. It really, uh, it, it is an, an interesting lens to throw over this what is there anything you do differently as a result of having drilled down on this topic to this degree i mean is there any a habit of mind you have or, or behavior that you consciously try to guard against or correct for yeah well i i'm much better at, um dealing with you know, as I said, I don't think unless you really want to go hard into the kind of meditation, I don't. I don't think there's there's really a way of, of lessening the emotions that the status game throws up. But I think knowledge of it, you know, making the unconscious conscious, is really powerful. And I'm much better at kind of observing myself 
and seeing it happen and therefore kind of rationalizing, mm. you know, my, my negative feelings. I, I, th- th- there's a scene in Pulp Fiction where a, a boxer is being told to throw the match and um, the, the person who's telling him to throw the match, there's, there's a line there that's like, you know, it, don't worry if you feel bad. That's just pride fucking with you. Yeah. And I've got, yeah. I always have that line in my head. That's just pride fucking with you. You know, that like, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm much better at kind of standing aside from it. So, I, you know, I, I, I really feel like I understand myself uh, and the world in general so much better through the study of the status game. But, but practically what I'm doing is what I've done is kind of, kind of hedging <laughs> my status games. As I kind of indicated before, I've, you know, I'm, I, I'm quite gnomish. I don't have children. I live in the country. Mm. Writing is what I do. You know, it's so now you're, you're getting into Holocaust denial as a hedge. <laughs> Uh, I've been getting into kind of um, cycling is one of the things I've been doing. And that's really interesting mm. because I was cycling, just cycling. And then I start, then I kind of opened an account with a cycling app that was measuring my speed and my distance and my elevation. And as soon as it started doing that, I became addicted to cycling. Like right. in that sense, I wanted to right. better. Oh, oh, I wonder if I can do this. I wonder if I can do this. And, and, and I've enjoyed watching myself do that. And, a, and that's a healthy, you know, status game to play. I mean, the other thing I'm doing uh, is uh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning volunteer work. I've actually got a, an interview with a charity on September the 11th. They're interviewing me to see mm. if I'm suitable or not. Um, because, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I'm all about this success game of being a writer, but, but I had to ask myself, you know, where's your virtue? What are you doing for other people? You, you do lots of things for your dogs, but, but, mm-hmm. but not for other people. So, so I, 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 and as a direct result of that, I, I, I'm going into kind of voluntary work as, 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 a, as a, you know, slightly selfishly as, um, a, 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 as another kind of status game to play. But also, it's, you know, it's not selfish. It's just acknowledging the, the basic fact that this is why we do these things that we do and other people benefiting from it. The status doesn't come to you unless you're sincere and other people genuinely uh not helped yeah yeah although i i am this is something i've talked about pretty much ad nauseum in other conversations but um i am increasingly interested in the dissociation between what we find most rewarding psychologically and and certainly a perception of elevated status is part of that picture and what is actually doing the most good in the world, right? And, and I think it's, you can clearly show cases where the thing that gives you the good feels, you know, even in the, in the space of philanthropy, is uh, less beneficial to the world than the thing you can rationally calculate is the, the, you know, the best use of your time or money, but doesn't feel as sexy, right? Mm. And that's it's just interesting to keep that in view because, you know, there are things I do to help the world that I've just automated, you know, I mean, just like, you know, most of the money I give to charity at this point, I'm not even, you know, I'm not even conscious of giving most of the time because I've, I've essentially automated it, mm-hmm. right? And I've automated it because in a clear moment of, you know, virtuous rationality, I decided what would be the best causes to support, you know, regardless of, of how they made me feel. And I just, you know, allocated you know, that amount of resources in advance. And then when I find something else that tugs at my heartstrings that, that really makes me feel rewarded by, you know, alleviating that particular suffering or engaging with that particular problem, I, I view that almost as a, as a, as a luxury, right? I mean, this is like, this is, some, this is an extra thing I'm doing that uh, is 
almost akin to you know just spending money quite literally on on a luxury good right it's just this is fun this is rewarding i love this but i do that knowing i've already allocated in a coldly rational way the other resources to things that i that you know i just i just know i sh- i should care more about than i do because i know that this is this is the body count associated with that problem. I mean, this is the, you know, the, the example I, I often give here is buying bed, you know, insecticide-treated bed nets and, and sending them to sub-Saharan Africa is, you know, still, you know, the best way or certainly one of the best ways to, you know, dollar for dollar mitigate, you know, misery and death. Mm. And, you know, so if you want to spend $1,000 to save the most number of lives, it is. It's still, you know, bed nets that could change any day. You know, we're certainly going to. It might change once we get a, a vaccine for malaria deployed. But at the moment, it's it's bed nets. But I find bed nets a really unsexy remedy to an unsexy problem, and it's just not. It's just not nearly as compelling to me as the story about the identifiable person. Who needs help, right? You know the GoFundMe page of the, mm. you know this one one little girl who yeah. you know, needs money for you know a spinal cord surgery or whatever whatever it is, and and so I do that thing too. But now now I do it knowing that I've done the other thing, with, and it's kind of out of sight and out of mind. And it's um, and so yeah, I mean that was a long winded way of saying that there's the status component may only be functioning in the in the conscious mental pleasure side of things and and there's there's another calculus to do when you're when you're thinking about doing the most good you can do yeah definitely i mean i the, I mean, the way i write about it in the book is that the, you know the conscious experience of life is a story is a heroic story the mm. status game is the unconscious stuff it's one of the things that we're doing unconsciously so the story is always going to be there you know guiding you but misleading you the, the, the story of life is that we do things because we're wonderful people the the, the real politic is the you know, is the status game. And I think, you know, things like the identifiable victim effect that you kind of alluded to there, that's all part of the, I think the storytelling brain is that, you know, that we do the things that make us feel heroic, even if they're not the things that rationally do the most good in the world. Yeah, although I don't, I don't think we need to land on quite that cynical or self-critical a spot with it, because I, I do think there is a, there is such a thing as genuinely caring about other people, right? And to find that your happiness increases insofar as you actually do care and get rewarded for caring. And I mean, there, there really is a virtuous piece of machinery here to get whirling in your brain and in, in the world. And it's not, it's not actually deflated by your status analysis. It's just, I mean, that's just another way of saying it gets reinforcement from the positive view of others. I mean, there, there certainly is some version that can be fuel for cynicism, and it, it is deflationary. I mean, when, like the, the and, and this is why, and this is to come back to topics I, I've touched before, this is why it was always viewed as being morally superior to do one's philanthropy anonymously, right? Yeah. Like if you're, if you're going to do it anonymously, well, then, then we know it's really not about status. You, you really just want to help. But if you want your name on the building, well, then you're a schmuck who just wanted to do it because you know you're you're just self self aggrandizing in a new way. But I, I do think there's a a next level to that game 
they can still be informed by that criticism, which is, no, actually trying to change the norms in our culture around giving does entail actually being honest and transparent about one's commitment to philanthropy. And it can be not, not just a matter of trying to aggrandize yourself. It can be a matter of just wanting to express this sort of positive value in the world and even acknowledging how it, it can be uncoupled from the moment-to-moment positive experience of, of feeling good for what you're doing. I mean, you can just figure out how to do the most good and have that be working unconsciously in the background and just recognize I mean, that we're, we haven't evolved to make data at scale emotionally salient. I mean, we're really just bad at, at absorbing statistics emotionally. And, and you know, so that, that's why the identifiable victim is so much more important to us and salient to us than the data on hundreds of thousands of people suffering the same fate. And in fact, I mean, most perversely, when you add these statistics to the identifiable victim, we care less about the victim, right? Mm-hmm. You just it, it, One little girl plus 100,000 is less of a concern to us than just one little girl. And um, so we just, I think we just can learn this about ourselves and know that, yeah, the, the face-to-face encounter with a smile is always going to be more salient than the abstract knowledge that you just saved a thousand lives by cutting a check to the right charity. But, you know, that's a bug, not a feature, and we can just correct for the bug and move on. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, we'll just go back to that point again, that I don't, I've gone through that journey of, I don't think it's a bad thing. That I think it's an amazing thing that, that, that we award status to ourselves and to other people when we do selfless things. I think it's, it, it's, the, it, it's the best thing about human nature. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible thing that we do, that we've evolved to do. And, it, and, it, and it's mm. you know, a, a part of the picture of an enormous amount of good that we do for each other. So, so yeah, I, I think we just need to get, get, get a bit more comfortable with that, the, the, that unconscious mm. truth that you know, part of the motivation for doing this stuff is that we, we want to feel like we're valuable people. And there's actually, there's nothing wrong with wanting to feel that way. Yeah, I think the the confusion comes in the in the apparent opposition between selfishness and selflessness, but there really is there's just a wise version of selfishness that includes love and compassion and positive sum interactions with other people, even strangers. The positive feeling you get seeing other people succeed is a genuine source of happiness. I mean, really, you know, it's, within Buddhism, it's called sympathetic joy. Mm. And, a, and, and an inability to feel that way because you're so envious of others or you feel like you're in a zero-sum contest with, their, with any change in their status, uh, you know, so that you're diminished by their success. I mean, that's obviously, psychologically speaking, a deeply impoverished place to be, right? So it's, I, I just think once you see that you, you actually want other people to be happy and you feel good when that happens and your own sense of, your sense of your own status can grow to include that type of positive sum engagement with people i think the, the the usual opposition between selflessness and selfishness breaks down yeah it's it's a very mean-spirited person that would deny somebody the pleasure of feeling good about themselves when they do something nice for 
for, for you know other people i remember reading george orwell once saying that and it really struck me it was very i was quite young at the time uh, that when you give money to homeless people never 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 want them to say thank you never expect them to say thank you and 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 and, and um i always you know whenever we ever give sort of give money to homeless people i i I'm sort of you know i make eye contact but i never look back i never wait for them to say kind of thank you i thought that was a really sort of powerful kind of point he was making but I still allow myself to feel good about myself for doing that that mm. thing. And I think it would be, as I say, a, a very mean-spirited person that would, that would kind of look down their nose, a very puritanical person that would look down their nose at you for, for, for allowing yourself a, a moment of, yeah, I did a good thing. Well, Will, it's a fascinating topic. We have um, not covered everything in your book. I, I would, your book uh, should be read just for the um, harrowing account you give of uh, Lenin and Stalin and communism and what happened to the kulaks? I mean, that was just, I've, I've forgotten some of those details, and uh, it's amazingly grim and, and uh, interesting reading. Before we sign off, what, what are you working on now? Do you, what, are you turning your attention to a new topic? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm currently just finishing a book with a, a British architect called Thomas Heatherwick, which is a book about how architecture became so appalling in, in, in the West. And what we can do about it. So mm. I, I, I've been enjoying kind of seeing the world in a new way because he's a, you know, he's a, he's, he's kind of a genius, Thomas Heatherwick. So, so that's going to be um, uh, interesting. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, when that comes out, because he's, because I think he's going to upset a lot of his architecture c- kind of colleagues. And I think for the ne- my next book, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to go back into thinking about how storytelling, you know, the, the storytelling brain impacts our lives, but from a more personal position. Nice, nice. Well, I look forward to that. Until next time, Will, thanks for your time. Thank you, Sam.